Hello everybody and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host Stephen Platt, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week we're going back in time, 65 years! Ooh, there's a ghost apparently. Uh, We are going back to 1956, we are going to review one of the classics of the science fiction genre on the occasion of its 65th birthday. We are watching Forbidden Planet. Dun dun dun. Joining me as always, we have someone who has seen the film and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film, it's Dr. Sarah Curtis. Hello. How are you, Dr. Sarah? I'm pretty good. How are you? Almost Dr. Stephen. Oh, that's not, uh, that's not, let's not jump the hay bale before we've put all the hay in it. (laughs) I think that's a saying. Um, Yes, uh, PhD is currently under examination. If any of my examiners are listening in, hello, how are you doing? Please hurry up. Uh, (laughs) Not to put too fine a point on it. Um. Dr. Sarah, just for the folks at home, who are you and what do you do? Uh, Yes, I am Sarah. I am an academic. I work at Murdoch University. I'm also an actor and a lyricist and I do all sorts of things in the theatre. But one of the things that you don't do is watch Forbidden Planet. This is true. I mean, I am fixing that today. It is. Yeah, true, true. So what do you know about it? Uh, Is this the one that is basically The Tempest? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, this is a, a loose adaptation of William Shakespeare's The Tempest. Which means I sort of know the plot. Mm, because, uh, yeah, you've you've been in The Tempest. Oh, at least once. At least once. Um, yes. So so given that you know that, um, what, what were you expecting from this 50s sci-fi film? Uh, I'm definitely expecting some sort of cool monster um, as the Caliban character. Uh, maybe a robot, potentially. Um, I guess a planet that is forbidden. Mm-hmm. Um, so they might have to get there or away from it. Not yeah. sure, but there'll be some sort of journey involved. Mm. I guess some sort of space magic. Sounds fun. Mm. I'm here for that. And someone's going to crash something right at the beginning. Mm. Yeah. Well, nailed it. S- some of those things are true. Um, <laughs> but which ones? We will find out in the course of time. Joining us as our guest who has seen the film uh, and back on the program for the first time this year, it is Aaron Vanderclay. Hello. Aaron, you're here in the flesh. I know, and I've seen this film. What? This is like a once in a lifetime <laughs> thing. I've barely watched films. Yes, uh, but despite that, you're a filmmaker. Yes, that is ironic, isn't it? Yes, yes. Uh, yes. you're too busy making them. Just crank it, cranking out the hits. That's that's what he's doing. Uh, just for the folks at home who, who may not have heard an episode review before, who are you, Aaron, and what do you do? My name's Aaron. I'm not a doctor, unfortunately. I feel a bit left out. Um, uh, but I'm a, a digital content producer, a filmmaker. I also work in marketing. Um, but yeah, making content is my thing. So, mm. yeah. And specifically uh, of of interest um, is is some of your Star Trek content. Oh yeah. So um, to keep myself creative and sane in my normal mundane job, I um, make Star Trek fan films. I did one many years ago, and I got a lot of attention online. And I just sort of kept making them and making them and making them, and I've kept making them. And I've just finished filming uh, one uh, at the start of this year. So. Yeah, it's coming out soon. Absolutely, and uh, if you if you go and look up, uh, I presume just Aaron Vanderclay Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, you'll see them. Uh, they're all pretty good. Thank you. Um, I I really like them, and you might even spot a couple of uh, 
Cinema Catch-Up Club guests on there. Because yes. uh, you've, you've had Dan Bockel, I know. I have. Him. Yes, and, it's uh, a Vulcan. Yes, and God, he was good. He was bloody <laughs> good. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, Sam Knox as well from way back. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And if you go even further back, you may see a Stephen Platt as, uh, as Doctor Who. Oh, they don't need to go back that far. No, they do. <laughs> okay, well. It was terrific. It was a lot of fun. Um, so given that you've seen this film, uh, and given that Sarah hasn't, what would you tell someone like Sarah who hasn't seen this film about Forbidden Planet? I guess in a vague, non-spoilery sort of way, what should they expect? Um, I guess this is like the first big screen science fiction film. So every sort of code and convention of a sci-fi film, this is the original. This is the OG. So we're talking like spaceships. We're talking robots. We're talking transporters. We're talking... Is there warp drive in this film? Um, it's Some been, sort it's of been a long time since I've watched I, it. Yeah. There better be. I was yeah. a kid when I watched this, so mm. I've seen so much science fiction now, so I'm really interested to see like the the start of it all, the, mm. the progenitor of it all, maybe. I'm mm. super excited. Yeah. Well, we're excited. Shall we go and watch Forbidden Planet? We shall. Yes. Okay, for those of you who are listening at home, pop in those DVDs, load up those streaming services, and hell is empty, and all the devils are here! Wait, that's from The Tempest. We're not watching that. We're watching Forbidden Planet. Bum, bum, bum. Welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching Forbidden Planet. And by we, I of course mean Aaron Vanderclyke. Hello. And Dr. Sarah Curtis. Hello. Dr. Sarah, that was your first time watching Forbidden Planet. It was. What did you think? It was quite charming. Hmm. Um, there were problems with it. Mm-hmm. There were quite big problems <laughs> with it. Yeah. But I liked seeing where the tropes came from. Yeah, I was I was not expecting that, even having seen this film. Because for, for my context, I watched this when I was about 18 in like a film studies class. As, you know, one of those films where it was like, you know, you have to watch this, Blade Runner, and some other films that I can't remember right now, but it was like, these are like important texts. So I remember bits, but um, yeah, I I didn't recall just how many of those iconic things were there, particularly with something like Star Wars. Yes, there are a lot of Star Wars, well, Star Wars referenced this a lot, yeah. visually especially. Yeah, um, but uh, you, you found it charming. Yeah, there were bits that, of it that were that were quite charming. Um, you know, it was very slow. The pacing was a bit, you know, whatever. But it was kind of like watching a uh, classic Stargate okay. kind of episode mm. when you're like, ooh, there's an invisible monster. What's it going to be? Which psychological thing is going to come out of this? Mm. So, you know, that's always fun. Mm. And, and for you, Aaron, you, you said the last time you watched this, you were a child. Yeah, I think I must have been like 10 or something when I watched it. Mm. So I just found it really long and boring and... It was probably in black and white that I probably watched it as well. Right. Um, so, yeah, it was interesting to watch it again. And, like, yeah, like you, Stephen, to see all those, like, sci-fi tropes that we mm. now think are standard, that was that was what came about because of this film. Yeah. And obviously the really interesting thing was you and I, and in fact all three of us, have created original science fiction content. Um, That's true. In the world of film for Aaron and the world of plays for... Myself and Sarah, I, I just found myself going, oh, I, I took that from this, apparently. <laughs> there were certain, like, elements of, like, characters, uh, particularly Robbie the Robot, where I was like, okay, there's no such thing as an original thought. That's where this came from. Yeah, there are lots, especially, you know, mm. 
Atlantis, you know, all of your stuff, Stephen. Yeah. You could definitely see where that came from. Less mine, except mine was more dystopian anyway, so it's more of a subgenre. Yeah. So I managed to avoid all of the big cliches yeah. of science fiction. That's true. Hey, at least mine was meant to be doing all the cliches, so <laughs> that, that helped a little bit. I felt good and scared at the same time. Um, so the, the story is just The Tempest, yeah, um, which for those who maybe haven't seen the film or, or experienced The Tempest is um, a ship of guys uh comes to a mysterious island slash planet and on this mysterious island slash planet there is a wizened old man who has knowledge that seems almost supernatural and his daughter who has never seen men before and mankind is so beauteous to her and there are also weird mysterious otherworldly forces and goings on and then some murders happen and then it all ends that's kind of the plot of both and it's it was interesting looking at it um and and I guess knowing that it was based on the Tempest going into this, Sarah, mm. um, how how was it for you in terms of like that checklist of going, this happened, this happened, this happened? Well, it was quite interesting actually guessing what was going to happen before it happened or just as it was about to happen, both mm. from the, the Tempest um, frame of reference as well as the science fiction in general going, ah, oh, we're about to self-destruct. Oh, look, we've destroyed the planet. Mm. That kind of thing throughout the whole thing. So, you know, having the Trinculo character kind of show up as the cook and, you know, very obviously a cook because he has the hat and he has mm. the apron and he sometimes <laughs> carries a pot. Yeah. <laughs> just to make sure you know that it's really clear what mm. he is. Yeah. He didn't do a lot of cooking, did he? he did, yeah, he didn't do no. any cooking. He didn't do any cooking and yet his name was Cook. Yeah. Most of the other crew members had at least, you know, surnames. But it was him and Boson were the two that were just a job. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think my problem was because I couldn't differentiate any of the characters because mm. they all looked identical. Mm. I was thinking, okay, so, so this thing is happening and one of these guys is going to be this particular character. Can't tell who, but definitely one of them. Yeah, you were waiting for one of them to be um, uh, Ferdinand, for yeah. example. And it turned out that Ferd uh, Ferdinand maybe wasn't who we were expecting because in, obviously in the original play, Ferdinand is the son of the king which would have been the son of Leslie Nielsen's character. To be honest, it would have made more sense if it was Jerry, who was originally flirting with um, Altera. Being a creep. Yeah, being, yeah, sorry. Being a creep, to use the correct terminology, because he was being a creep, but we'll get onto it in a little <laughs> bit. Um, but he is in the Ferdinand mould initially, whereas um, John, Leslie Nielsen's character, is very much in the... Um, I guess in the Alonzo role, mm. really. So uh, they've kind of put those characters together. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, he basically just transforms from being Alonzo to Ferdinand, just so he can hook up with, with Anne Francis, I guess. Aaron. Yes. <laughs> talk to me about Robbie the Robot. Uh, just because I, I think that if we're looking at positives from this film, I think Robbie the Robot is like the big shining, literally shining positive from yeah, this film. Yeah, I mean, you know, compared to everybody else, Robbie the Robot had a stellar career after this film. Like, he was in <laughs> he was in everything at yeah. that time. And he, like, became this sort of, like, household name for being a robot. I mean, he he kind of, he, he is the first iconic robot. Yes. Um, I mean, there were obviously, you know, people will say, what about that lady from metropolis and we'll go yep yeah, but yeah but that's... what's what's that character's name we we, we know the poster but in maria terms... isn't it is maria it, it is maria well well, well done um yes uh but but it's 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 that thing of um maria is kind of more famous for just being that 
that image, yeah. that, that incredible poster image or the image of the film of that transformation. Yeah. But the character of Maria is not well known. I Whereas, mean, did she have a character? I don't really remember Metropolis very well, but, you mm. know, it's a female character. I'm going to say there wasn't much character involved. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I must admit, it has been a long time since I watched I, um, I was 15 Metropolis. when I saw it. Yeah, so we'll have to... You know what? It's coming up for a 100-year anniversary in about six years. We'll do it then. I'm pretty sure there's like a remastered, colorized, Mm. everything version of that. So, yeah. Let's watch it. But in terms of iconic robot or artificial characters in this sense, Robbie really is first. And and he's he's just great. He's just such an interesting character. Although I say he, he's also uh, defining gender (laughs) boundaries in a way that was really unexpected. Um, where, yeah, the cook is, is saying, so is it a he or a she? And he goes, a question is not applicable to me. It's it's just kind of, th- th- it gets left at that. We never see anything more with that. And I do get that at the time that would have just been a fun throwaway joke. But I think what this film does, which I think is part of its charm, is you can really see it set up what-ifs that would inspire everything that came next. Yeah. Like, you can imagine Gene Roddenberry watching this and going... yeah. This is, and he's even said this was yeah, a massive influence 100%. on yeah. Star. And you can see yeah. it with the the weird not transporters that they stand in when they. Yeah, I thought that was a transporter, but it was like yeah. a, a suspended animation. Yeah, thing. And I don't know that that was necessarily that well communicated visually no. in yeah, this. Yeah. But... but then they didn't have that visual language at the time because mm, these no. days we'd think, oh, you know, they'd be put in pods, and you might have like a blue glass that goes in front of them, and yeah. there might be like you know something that makes it look like they're in ice, mm. yeah. and that's how we know. But yeah. we think that sort of energy beam must mean transportation yeah uh but you can see how that would have done it and obviously you know the crew of people wandering around in similar uniforms following the words of the captain yeah um, i mean the captain who it, it's weird seeing leslie nielsen play a, a, a serious a serious role. character yeah straight character <laughs> but he's very good in this yeah um, he is he's, be- a, he's quite a leading man yeah and the thing that's really fun though is you can just see kirk all through this guy yeah, yeah. like it, it's it's so glaringly obvious that that is where Shatner's version of the character was based on, whether it was from Roddenberry writing based on this character or Shatner having seen this performance and, and building on it. It's it's really interesting seeing that groundwork. And again, with the with the Star Wars elements, I feel like Morbius, to an extent, is almost the the image of the, the bad Jedi, to an yeah. extent. Yeah. He's, he's a bit Kenobi, and he's a bit Darth Vader. And a bit Tarkin as well. Yeah. It's interesting in this film that there's no... You would expect for that time there would be a very definitive villain. Like, the villain would be a person, or the villain would be a... Uh, like, a physical monster, or the villain would be a robot. Like, the mm. poster, it kind of makes out mm. like Robbie the Robot is going to be the main villain. Yeah. yeah. And when he comes over, you know, they all draw out their guns because they're not sure what this thing is, and then he's the butler, and yeah. he's got a man's friendly butler voice, and he mm. makes dresses and coffee and... And Just 60 gallons of whiskey. Yeah, and drives a car and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. He's cool. Yeah, and then yeah. even Morbius, you know, he's dressed in black. His name, you think that he's going to be this villain, mm. evil, you know, um, possessive father to this girl. And mm. that's not the case, really. It's not entirely what he is, no. Yeah. The, 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 there is no truly, I would say, good character in this film. Yeah. And we maybe don't expect that from our 1950s films, particularly our 1950s science fiction films. Yeah. Um, obviously, the the crew of the um, the very memorably named ship checks notes uh, 
C57D. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Not name. a great name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, that, that's one thing they definitely have improved on since yeah. then. But um, the, the crew of the, of the C57D are very much portrayed as being good characters at that time. But obviously, now we watch them and we go, I think the only one that is maybe unquestionably quite good is Doc, mm. um, who, who commits that self sacrifice because he never once tries to chase skirt that's yeah. basically what it comes he doesn't creep he didn't on have the a one chance girl. yeah well it's true yeah he yeah. maybe he didn't get a chance yeah. maybe if well i mean when she first sees them she's like i like the two on the end but not the one in the middle yeah and so that's he because he was went... a decent guy yeah and that frequently happens in life <laughs> yeah but yeah it's true but yeah like it's interesting with this um reading where and uh, altera played by Anne francis doesn't really have a morality it, it gets developed over the course of the film. And it's kind of interesting seeing that as a reflection of Miranda from The Tempest, mm. who is pretty much always portrayed as a good character because she is just innocence personified. Yeah. Because she's been brought up with only Prospero. Which is actually really hard to play. Because mm. I played Miranda. You did. And I don't think I could do it again. Mm. I, I str- It's one of the characters I've struggled most with. Mm. Because there's nothing there to work with beyond i see a pretty boy i'm gonna go to the pretty boy mm. i love the pretty boy mm. that's her entire character it's a journey mm. Which, whereas with altera in this she she has that but she also has she act she actually chooses against morbius she actually rejects her father even mm. though it feels like it kind of comes a bit out of the blue yeah and it's happening just because she has learned about this thing called kissing or you know that that kind of thing i've got to admit i was really disappointed that um the second kiss with the cap the, the captain kiss mm. um she actually responded to because she obviously hated the first one yeah with yeah. what's his face the and creep she was quite sassy about it as well i yeah. love the fact that she turned around and said Oh, am I supposed to be stimulated from this? Yeah, the, yeah that the, was perfect. Yeah, the, the exact quote. I haven't felt the least bit of stimulation. <laughs> yeah. I related so hard to that line. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was, again, surprising to see a sexual representation. And I feel like in that particular moment, her character had significantly more authority and power over mm. the guy. Like, he's quite, like, mm. taken aback and he goes to kiss her again. But you can see from her body language that it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm... Okay. Is this supposed to be better? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and but then she loses that yeah, when Captain <laughs> yeah. John comes in. Because suddenly um, her asexuality is conquered by the sexy, sexy man. Mm. Yeah, the, the ubermensch has come in and It's and probably it because all. he changed his outfit from that sort of padded shoulder thing to that sort of open flared collar, like, 70s outfit. And yeah, that, yeah, that would cure me. Chest hair. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's all he needed. Um, what, what, what do we think of um, of all the stuff with the Krell? Um, and the this sort of ancient alien civilization, because I I'd forgotten this completely. I'd forgotten that there was an ancient aliens kind of thing yeah. to to this film. Um, but I I quite enjoyed it. I feel like it's a very Shakespearean or almost Greek tragedy type thing where it's mm. like we've got this incredible civilization just over there. They're gone. Mm. Yeah, right. they're dead. Off stage. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I mean, I wonder if that was part of it because I mean they do specifically even reference gorgons. Yeah. At one point, yeah, yeah. when he's showing them the, the energy at the centre of the planet, he's like, you know, do not look directly in the yeah. eye of the Gorgon. Mm. So it could potentially be something Well, it's like also that. very Tolkienian as well, because mm-hmm. that's what he was doing in The Lord of the Rings, was creating this grand, tragic backstory of, you know, the these elves who are now gone, or these men who are now gone, and you can see the ruins of their cities, but yeah. that's pretty much it. And we'll talk about their history occasionally. Yeah. It's, it's cheaper. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's a cheap... Yeah. yeah, these amazing aliens. We, we can share their door frames. God, they must have been weird shapes. Um, but but also it works for the story of the mystery. Mm. And I, I do think this, this story does a quite a good job with its mysteries. Like with the, the invisible id monster. And the fact that we don't really see it. We get a sense of its shape in that sequence where it's stuck in the laser fence and they're shooting all their pew-pew lasers at it. Yeah. Very Disney-esque. It's, yeah. Well, uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's a Disney animator that's drawing mm. this this simian-like creature. Mm. Um, King Kong meets the beast. Yeah. It's it's kind of fascinating. But and I, a part of me was like, I kind of wish we he- didn't even have that detail. Mm. I thought it was really effective when we couldn't see anything. And it was simple tricks like the footprints appearing in the sand or that yeah. shot of the camera being like 10 foot up yeah. and sort of going into the ship. I really liked the uh, the staircase yeah. where as it went down, the steps went down and mm. then they came back up when the foot obviously came up. Yeah. So cool. It was, yeah, there was some really great visual effects going on. Even the casting of the, the, the footprint, mm. like it just mm. was enough to be like, okay, that's its foot. How does the rest of it look? Yeah. Mm. And it's, kind of lizardy yeah mm. yeah it was it was lizard bird mammoth thing monkey creature thing but but, but oh, most importantly we discovered it was the id it was uh bloody edward morbius it was his own subconscious being his first name was edward yeah edward. I, it gets it gets mentioned at the start of the film <laughs> what ed, ed morbius yeah 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 but no one was like hey eddie come over it <laughs> yeah, it's not quite as threatening no but uh, okay yeah but yeah dr morbius is uh subconscious is uh, is very primal and destructive and yeah. uh, is is their downfall and it's it's just kind of fascinating in a very episode of the twilight zone kind of way which is not a criticism um it's just weird seeing that sort of story in a film because yeah. it feels a mu- like a much more televisual yeah. episode of star trek to be yeah. honest it it's fe- quite intelligent yeah it it feels more like you know, next week we'd see this cast of characters going to another planet where they deal with aliens who are... Um, half black and half white. Half black, yeah, <laughs> that is exactly where I was going. Yeah, and, you know, but, but, they're, but you know, they, they have racism because half of them are white on one side and half of them are black on the same side. And, yeah. you know, it's like, God, this seems stupid, doesn't yeah. it? it? It feels like it would fit... To be honest, it just feels like a, a Star Trek <laughs> pilot. Episode, yeah. It really, it really yeah. does. And it it's kind of fascinating seeing that play out in a in a 100 minute film format um i do have to point out that at one point robbie the robot said uh, when asked what he was doing said he was giving himself an oil job no, I, yeah I'm, I'm curious because we all sort of made a face of when when he said that but what do you think an oil job is i mean i guess he's got to lubricate all his parts mm. yeah because like it, 3po yeah, but the three PO never called it an oil job. He had an oil bath. He had an oil bath. We see an oil bath doesn't conjure up. There's something about the use of the, of the suffix job. Yeah, I know this oil bath feels so good. I feel like Robbie the robot seems to be made up of a lot of like sort of metal sphere, spheres of things. So mm. maybe it just in order to be flexible, he had to yeah, just keep him going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. live up his balls. Because yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, we got there in the end. <laughs> um, the film ends um, with with Morbius uh, getting killed by his own id, which is, yep, that was going to happen. Uh, but then tricking John into setting off a self-destruct sequence to destroy the planet. And it was kind of funny because, Sarah, you were laughing at it. But I do wonder... It feels so classically sci-fi, but this was 
kind of the first one like yeah. the idea of that for an audience that had never seen the death star blow up alderan or anything like that um i i, I am kind of curious how that must have felt at the time mm. particularly to have a big bright space explosion at the end of the film yeah i mean the thing i was laughing at was more that they were trying to make it a romantic moment and you know mm. he's holding on to what's her face miranda whatever her name is uh, Al- altera it's very memorable mm. um and well, you know she's the she's got the feminine version of the planet's name yeah yeah yeah, yeah memorable yeah because uh, i knew that was the planet's name definitely yeah it'd be like if in the tempest she was called islander <laughs> <laughs> Um, or Marina. Oh, Melanda. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he's holding on to her in a very sexy kind of romantic way. And meanwhile, she's watching, like, her dad has just died. She's mm. watching her planet that she grew up on explode. Mm. This isn't yeah. a romantic moment. No. Yeah. It, 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 was said, it was said at the time when we were watching it, this would be like Grand Moff Tarkin getting up and close with Princess Leia when they blow up Alderaan. Yeah. And it's like, hey, babe, like, everything you love is dead. Yeah. And now you're stuck with us. Although, at the very least, Robbie's got a job. Yeah. yeah, which yeah. is uh, which is what we want. Yeah. And she doesn't, even though she's she knows philosophy and history and science and biology and all the other things that she's learnt. Mm. Yeah, probably alien languages and stuff as well. Probably. Is, yeah. Actually, that brings me to a question. Yes. So in 1950s sci-fi, was it popular to have philologists as the main characters? I don't believe so. Because C.S. Lewis did it mm. um, in Go, his in his ahead. trilogy. Mm. Um, in Paralandra, Out of the Silent Planet, whatever the third one's called. Uh, it was pretty terrible. Um, but the main character is a philologist, and the whole point is that he's going to this other planet, and because he's good at languages, he can communicate with the aliens, mm. um, which seems to be what's happening here. And the reason he did that was because he's like, hey, you know, I'm friends with all these philologists. My buddy, to- buddy Tolkien does this thing. It'd be great if he was a main character in this sci-fi thing. Yeah. It just I, seems to be a bit of a thing. I, I, I wonder if it's just because in this specific case, having a philologist, which for those of you at home who maybe don't know, is someone who studies language or specifically the history of language. Um, it, it helps the plot because they need a way to understand what the Krell were yeah, writing. Yeah. So it makes sense in that respect. Um, it's the sonic screwdriver. Yeah. Mm. It's Universal a, translator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in, literally in this case. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't recall from a lot of the other 50s and 60s science fiction things that I've watched that they specifically have philologists. They tend to have another MacGuffin, a bit like in Doctor Who, where it's like, oh, the TARDIS just translates everything nearby, like yeah. that sort of thing. Um, but you, you may be onto something there. Maybe, yeah. I don't well, know. I mean, that's around the time when philology kind of got dropped and everyone was like, oh, no, let's move on to real things like English. Mm. Yeah, let's just focus on one language. <clears throat> that's yeah. all we need. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do have to say, um, I really enjoyed the design of the ship. I don't like the name of the ship, but I did enjoy yeah. the design of the ship. Uh, and the fact that it was humans in something that looks very traditionally like a like UFI. an alien saucer yeah. mm. um and also the fact that we're never on earth at any point like we, we are essentially following the alien invaders and it's kind of interesting and i do wonder whether or not it was a deliberate choice to give them a ufo shaped ship to give well, them that sense when did that shape ship mm. come in ship shape uh, and become a thing. It was definitely a thing before this film because of uh, a lot of the um, B-grade uh, science, science fiction, fiction. films yeah, yeah, yeah. from like the late 1940s to the particularly the early 50s. Um, and you, you, there are variants of the design, like in the 1953 War of the Worlds. They took concept of the saucer but made it a bit more triangular and with the big laser stalk on top. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the saucer 
design was was definitely around prior to this film. Uh, I think this film would have definitely helped popularise it. But I, yeah, I, I don't know whether or not it was that ingrained in the public consciousness. Yeah. Uh, as to for them to go, oh, they're the aliens. That's I. It feels like it's probably a deliberate choice, but it could just be a, a, a science fiction PhD <laughs> reading of it. I'm I'm not sure. Well, I know that there was a lot of discussion around and debate around that time about what a spaceship would look like yeah. because you know they, they, some serious authors were like, oh, you know, how could we possibly do this scientifically mm. without realizing that they weren't scientists? So yeah. whatever they were going to make up was going to be bullshit anyway. It's sort of just accepted in this film. Though mm. it's like, mm. well, they're in a flying saucer. There you go. Yeah, we don't really talk about how it's powered or we don't need to know yeah. that. I think it's, it's not a rocket ship. Yeah. Well, I think it's really interesting that rocket ships are seen as uh, outdated. The whole premise of this thing being in the the far future is quite different from other films of this this time period. Yeah. Because usually it's about unless it's like Buck Rogers in the twenty fifth century, it's yeah. normally things that are about contemporary, like nineteen yeah. fifties humanity yeah. going out into the stars yeah. or a little bit in the future yeah, yeah. Um, whereas in this one they're like yeah men and women made it to the moon yeah um they got that wrong we haven't sent a woman there yet but um, <laughs> but that's such a it's interesting like it's such a deliberate thing to say like men yeah. and women yeah mm. and yet to not have it then in none. the film <laughs> yeah. yeah but um, i mean hey there was a woman and she lived on a planet true yeah. but like there were no female crew members which i i, I do find very odd well, I mean, as we've seen with the all-female crew in space, mm. if you send only one gender to space, then they're not going to get up to any shenanigans. Definitely not. That's mm-hmm. true. That's true. 100%. That, yeah. Yep, was, that's was, how that works. That ship had no homo. They were very clear <laughs> on that. They were all like, oh, what, there's a woman? Oh, we can't help us. You know, that kind of thing, which is just pathetic and disgusting. But um, I do think it's interesting that, yeah, they framed it as being... Yeah, we made it to space. We made it to the moon. And then we made it to all the other planets yeah. nearby by like the year 2200. And now we're just off into space yeah. doing our thing. Routine checkup missions. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, I, I did find that framing interesting in, in that respect for this film because it did feel quite aspirational, I suppose. Um, as opposed to given that a lot of these films were reflecting the cold war fears that were around at the time it was normally like oh these aliens are representative of the enemies of the american nation um maybe they know they're their own worst enemies because of this film could be could be could absolutely bring their own destruction yeah it's it's fascinating and and i do agree it's quite charming um but there are issues um we've touched on a few of them uh but i think i think the, the the main issue i found as a 2021 watcher was was the um the the sexual politics mm-hmm. um and i will now open the floor over to uh, sarah as our as our resident woman on this episode yes i speak for all women yes no, uh. but, but specifically from your perspective i'm just going to interrupt you there as a man <laughs> <laughs> well actually Yes, but but in terms of there were quite a few egregious issues. Yeah, there were issues that I had. Um, obviously, watching this, I mean, first you have this this innocent and pure virgin, the only woman in the on the entire planet, mm. um, who therefore every man must desire, and they cannot control their desire when they're around her, mm. and they must immediately whisk her away to be like, yes, and I'm going to teach you all about kissing. Yeah, it was very condescending. Um, because, you know, that's it's the assumption that the man will teach the woman all about her sexuality. That at no point 
has she ever considered figuring things out for herself? Has she ever, you know, come across this? And, you know, maybe because she is the only person her age that maybe she hadn't come across this, but she doesn't need the first man she meets in life to be like, yeah, I'm going to teach you about kissing and then we're going to keep going. And Mm. And then for the second man to essentially, like, slut shamer like, yeah like he sh- slut shames her yeah. he's like yeah you you had it coming because of the way you dress yeah and she's <laughs> rightly affronted and storms off yeah because yeah. that was nonsense it was awful and the, as soon as he said that i was like oh no this is the love interest isn't it mm. this is how we're setting up that they're in love because they start by fighting yeah. and by hating each other and yelling at each other and it's all a big mis- misunderstanding because of love mm. and who knows the next day turns out they get together and suddenly him his magic lips uh, what yeah. she needed to suddenly have her sexual awakening. Mm. And because of that sexual awakening, she's like, Daddy, I'm going to leave you and leave the planet and my tiger isn't going to recognize me anymore because I felt desire. Oh, God, female desire. It mm. changes your body and Makes your chemistry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what I learned from this film. <laughs> yeah, Brings a whole new light onto the Tiger King yeah. series. And she changes the way she dresses because one guy told her once mm. that he didn't like what she was wearing. I do like that she changes back, though. Yes. Like, yeah. it, it doesn't stay. Like, she goes back to what she was traditionally wearing before. And yeah. I did appreciate that. That was good. But, that you know, she shows so much backbone in the first five minutes she's on screen. And then mm. after that, she's kind of standing in the background, posing mm. like a model. I'm sexy. <laughs> mm. Love me. Or embrace me. Swimming naked, naked, but not actually naked. Just yeah. wearing skin-colored swimsuit. Um, but, but I, I, yeah, I, the, yeah, the naked swimming thing just feels pretty unnecessary. Like, uh, other than to maybe show, like, this is an idyllic Eden. Yeah. But they'd kind of already done that. And I, I think it feels egregious because um, we did Walkabout right at the start of the year on this podcast. And that has a scene of a young uh, female um, character in the nude. And in that film, she's fully in the nude. And she, the, the performer was still a teenager at the time, but it was shot um, in a way that was not uh glorifying uh sexualization of it it was more of a this is us stripping away all of the elements of civilization and having somebody um in nature experiencing naturally at least that was my reading of it at at the time Um, and certainly it felt a lot less pervy the way that was shot Mm. and also because in that film she's swimming by herself whereas in this film it's bloody john somehow magically knowing there's a naked woman nearby i can sense it yeah, and he, then... he, his spider senses literally yeah, were tingling yeah. you could him see and every other bloke on that ship yeah. his yeah. nose was twitching he's like wait naked woman this way and he obviously from the the angle could not see her no he just magically knew yeah which was like Mm-mm. okay cool yeah mm. um yeah i do have to say as well um the, the, the reason the rocketry to get back, I just realised we never covered that point. The reason that rockets are seen as ancient is they actually call the whiskey or the alcohol, whatever it is, ancient rocket whiskey. Mm. Um, I think it's a really nice touch where, yeah, yeah, the 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 contraband alcohol that the cooks get and Robbie to recreate has shows how far into the future they are because they consider rockets something ancient. Did Robbie also not say that there was another element besides alcohol in it that was actual fuel? Yeah, yeah, yes. like that. Yeah, and uh, that that leads us handily. Into our trivia section. So, would you guys like some trivia about Forbidden Planet? Yes, sure. please. Okay. All of this trivia is sourced from IMDb, so if it's not true, don't blame me. When Robbie the Robot analyzes the cook's bourbon, he says there are traces of fusel oil. 
Fusel oil is a byproduct of alcoholic fermentation and is purported to lessen the severity of hangovers. Later in the movie, when the cook is being questioned about drinking with Robbie, he comments that drinking four pints of whiskey without getting a hangover isn't natural, thus supporting the no hangover idea. So, yeah, Robbie correctly uh, ascertained that the cook had been adding stuff to prevent hangovers so that he could keep drinking and not get caught. Uh, Which is just like, it's just like a fun extra detail that's not necessary for the film at all. Yeah. Because who notices that? Yeah. Yeah. But, well, somebody Someone on IMDb. Yeah. yeah, and we're grateful for it. Uh, this was the first mainstream film to have the music performed entirely by electronic instruments. Mm. Started to movement. Mm. And some of it was very loud and repetitive. Yeah. But mostly, I, I felt it mostly worked. The one time I found it really jarring was there was when they were having a discussion back on the ship um, um, between John and Doc, and there was just like this pause like mm. yeah it's like is this an alarm is yeah, this yeah. supposed yeah. to be what happening, happening? <laughs> uh, the way the score was generated was um uh by a, a guy named louis baron uh using ideas and procedures from the book cybernetics or control and communication in the animal and the machine from 1948 uh louis baron constructed his own electronic circuits that he used to generate the scores bleeps blurps whirs whines throbs hums and screeches Most of these sounds were generated using an electronic circuit called a ring modulator. After recording the basic sounds, um, he and uh, Bebe Baron, who was um, his his co-musician, although we'll get to that uh, accreditation, um, they further manipulated the sounds by adding other effects, such as reverberation and delay and reversing or changing the speeds of certain sounds. Uh, but the Musicians' Union objected to the soundtrack and blocked the Barons from being credited as composers, which is why they are referred to as electronic tonalities in the script. <laughs> it also meant that they were ineligible for any uh, awards come uh, award time as oh, well. That's upsetting. Yeah. They revolutionised music yeah. and film. But they weren't part of the union. Bastards. And what they were making wasn't, strictly speaking, music, apparently. Uh, yes, it was. Uh, yes, it was. It's kind of like, you know, when The Lord of the Rings wasn't eligible for any awards for Gollum because, you know, he wasn't really an actor, so he couldn't be up for any acting awards, mm. even though he was 100% an actor. Yeah. And you can get awards for that now. Mm. Whatever. Fun fact, a ring modulator is what they used to make the Dalek voice in Doctor Who. Nice. There you go. That bloody... Terry Nation was watching this and going, I need that. I've got a great idea. <laughs> uh, the the um, the Altera's garden scene was shot on the same location as the Munchkin village from Wizard of Oz. That actually, kind of, that makes sense. Because mm. I was looking at that going, this kind of looks like a set mm. place that I've seen before. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, uh, there weren't any nude munchkins swimming around going, oh, you've seen me, let me change into something. But uh, yeah, shot on the same location. Yeah. Um, The famous poster for the film shows a menacing robot carrying a struggling pretty girl, a staple of the monster movie posters from the 50s. As we've just observed, no such scene occurs in the film and the robot portrayed in the poster is, of course, the very likeable Robbie. And the only character that gets carried by Robbie is uh, the doc when he is uh, fatally injured. When Um, he's a mannequin. And then when he's a mannequin, mannequin, yeah. yeah. Um, But yeah, I I think it's... It is interesting with that poster being so iconic um, that it's 
just not part of the film. And it's not always the case for the posters, like that iconic Star Wars poster. There's never a point where Luke Skywalker stands with his lightsaber up like that and Princess Leia's leaning on him. And Well, I totally remember that bit. Mm, do you? Definitely. Mm. Aren't uh, you a little short for a stormtrooper? <laughs> yes. Um, but, I mean, it is a great poster, though. Yeah. yeah. And I do like the fact that they have redrawn it in more recent versions to, to be Robbie carrying the dock, as, as opposed to carrying some woman that doesn't even look like Anne Francis. Like, it's a completely different person. Um, I'm fairly certain that when Robbie the Robot appears in different films, some of them are him as the villain. Mm. So I feel like the fact that we as an audience are lulled into this idea that he is the villain in this film when he is not, Mm. and then you go into another film expecting him to be nice and friendly and a great butler, Mm. and then he probably kills people. Subverting expectations. Yeah. Yeah, look, he's one of the 20th century's great. Um, subverters of Scream. Um, so, well, well done, Robbie. Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry has been quoted as saying that this film was a major inspiration for the series. So, um, yeah, what we were saying before was true. Um, perhaps not accidentally, Warren Stevens, who played Doc, would later be a guest star on the original series of Star Trek in the episode By Any Other Name, uh, where the true shape of the alien Kelvins, like the Krell in this movie, is implied to be extremely non-humanoid, but never shown. Mm. That feels like a very deliberate choice of getting that actor in for that. Uh, 1701, which is the serial number of the Starship Enterprise, allegedly comes from the clock mark 1701 when the C-570 enters orbit around Altair 4. So, yeah. That's a very obscure reference. Yeah, was he sitting in the cinema like, oh, I see that number and I'm going to use it? It's Gene Roddenberry. I would not be surprised. It was a big old nerd. Maybe the biggest and oldest of nerds there ever was. The reaction from the preview audience was so positive that the movie was released as it was with no further changes. That is why there are several rapid takes towards the end. And just some weird editing. Weird editing. I like how there was like a cut at the end, like in the middle of a scene. And like, I was like, scrunched my face up and Sarah looked at me like... Oh, you. Mm. I also had the same yeah. face, I think, there. It was yeah. kind of like, yep, I saw that, and that was weird. Yeah. I just love that they were like, they love it, print it, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was that really long scene um, with lots and lots of dialogue um, with and lots of technical jargon, yeah. and you can tell by the end, he was like, what's my line? I'm going to walk over here and stumble a bit and say oh, something, yeah. and then yeah. walk over here and stumble like, a I bit. Need, I need time to think. Yeah. <laughs> Walter Pigeon having uh, what is probably nowadays known as a William Hartnell. Where <laughs> yeah. just, a I, Billy Fluff. Yeah, I cannot remember this line. Oh, shit. The miniskirt worn by Anne Francis was seen to be the first worn in a Hollywood movie um, and resulted in the movie being banned in Spain. I mean, uh, that is just too much leg. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was not shown there until 1967 because, uh, obviously, they were under the dictatorship of General Franco, and uh, it was considered dirty and obscene that a woman wore a miniskirt to show off her legs. I reckon he had a copy of that film. I bet he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He he was probably like, I see no problem with his <laughs> relations between John and Altair in this. this. This all seems... It's a healthy relationship. What are you talking about? Yeah. He didn't even have a... Family executed, like you know, what's what's going on? I mean, on he kind of did. Maybe. Yeah, well, yeah. Well. <laughs> How else did they get together? Uh, well, I mean, in fairness, Morbius kind of did that to himself to an extent. Yeah, but I feel like Captain Watts's face was cheering him on. True, true. Mm-hmm. In in a way, well, he blows up the whole planet. Yeah, I mean, he was using his inferior intellect um, to to you know 
mm. shoot things. Yeah, classic American diplomatic approach. Which is which is one hundred percent what they do in um, in Stargate. They have mm. this whole thing, this whole plot line where everyone's super smart except one character, mm. and he saves the day because he is the least smart and yeah. therefore able to cope with whatever it is. Yeah, it's I love that trope. I loved it when they did it in Futurama with Fry, um, tricking the giant brains to to accidentally make them all dumb for a bit and they were like oh we can't deal with it the planet on which edward and altera morbius live is altair 4 which according to star trek deep space 9 is a federation planet oh i thought that sounded familiar yeah i was gonna say yeah it does sound sound familiar director fred wilcox consulted with scientists before making the decision that the planet sky would be green as well and there's a whole um thing about how there was like a specific microscopic creature that like absorbed oxygen in a particular way and it made it float and change the color of the sky and things like that and that was all details that they ended up omitting from the film but fair enough yeah it was long already it was yeah (laughs) it's kind of like the star wars details in the last film when they're like yes did you know that on this planet you know sidious you know had all these people raised to be on his super star destroyers and everyone was like no you, you didn't tell us that so how could we possibly know yeah it's much easier just to have a man lick the planet and then go Salt. Like, yeah. that's, that's all yeah. we need. That, Orc that, blood. Yes. It was a very lovely um, cyclorama that they had mm. of, the, of the green sky and the big. rocks and it, stuff like that. It, it was, was pretty. Very big. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Well. No, they obviously spent a lot of money on yeah. this film. Um, Robbie the Robot was originally operated by the stuntman actor Frankie Darrow. He was fired during filming after almost falling over while in the very expensive prop, most expensive movie prop at the time ever, uh, following a five martini lunch. Ooh. It turns out that when uh, Cook is pouring that that bourbon inside him, <laughs> was pouring it straight in his mouth. <laughs> yeah, Frankie's just down there like, ah, 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 give it to Method me. Method acting never works. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I just thought it was really interesting that yeah, poor. Well, I'm going to was about to say poor Frankie, but that he 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 should have known better than to than to get five martini drunk and mm-hmm. then get inside the most expensive prop in in the film. Ooh. MGM insisted on changes to Cyril Hume's script by adding comic relief scenes with the ship's cook. What? Among these scenes, which were written but then not filmed, uh, was one in which Robbie the Robot responds to the cook's complaint about the lack of female companionship by bringing him a female chimp. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. It was reportedly not filmed. (laughs) Yep. God, I can't see why. Feels like a classic 50s joke of just like, you wanted a lady. Here's here's a lady. But that's a gym. I mean, it's kind of like the sexy lamp, you know? Mm. It does the exact same thing as a lot of these female characters at the time did. You know what's funny? It's probably, um, they probably didn't film it because like the chimp ran away during rehearsals or something. (laughs) It was too expensive. They were ready to do it. And then it was like, oh. They had had that little... that little monkey that ran in and went to steal the fruit and Robbie shot at it with a laser and scared it off. But yeah, maybe they were like, that's enough monkey in a red. We'll we'll just stick to that. In the early 90s, a remake was announced um, several times with Irvin Kirshner, who directed uh, The Empire Strikes Back, attached, and Anthony Hopkins as Dr. Morbius uh, lined up. I can say that. I think he'd have been great. Yeah. Um, But the financing kept falling through and it never got made. Uh, Although... Maybe one day. Do, do we need a Forbidden Planet being well, that's made? what I was thinking. You know, it's a surprise that it hasn't been remade, but re- yeah, it's not. We don't actually need it because no, it's no. done everything that it needed to do, which was make sci-fi... Mainstream. Yeah, yeah. get the tropes out there. Yeah. As a story, it's not particularly good. It's already a remake, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a remake of The Tempest. Yeah. That's exactly what they've done. And like, we've seen basically that as an episode in any sci-fi series yeah. ever. Mm. Yeah. 
So. I also like the fact that we we did notice that the cook looked a bit like Matt Damon. And once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. The cook looks like Matt Damon. Yeah. And um, yes, uh, Morbius has a bit of the older Pierce Brosnan around Pierce Brosnan. him, as, as Aaron pointed out, and was absolutely correct. Um, so we're halfway there with casting the modern version. Um, referring to Robbie the Robot, the cook asks, Hey Doc, is it a male or a female? Although on one level this line is just meant to be comic relief, it also serves as a reference to the performance history of The Tempest. Robbie the Robot is an analogue for the character of Ariel in The Tempest, and Ariel is one of the earliest examples of gender-blind casting in Western theatrical history. Although Ariel is described as male in the play, quote, To thy strong bidding, task Ariel and all his qualities, end quote. According to Anne Button in the Oxford Companion to Shakespeare, the role was regularly and exclusively cast with actresses almost as soon as women were allowed on the English stage during the Restoration era. Then, starting during the early 20th century, the casting practice shifted again, and Ariel was thereafter played by male and female performers interchangeably and roughly equally. Yeah, makes sense. Hmm. I just kind of thought that was a really neat touch, and I, I didn't realise that. Um, yeah, it was it was a reference to to Robbie being Ariel. It was kind of, it was kind of cool. This film's just full of these little things. Where I'm like, that's I really like that. Yeah. That's kind of cool. I mean, Robbie can do anything like magic. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and the final bit of trivia: four cast members of this film later appeared in Columbo, and it's been a long time since we've had Columbo chat on this podcast, uh, but. Uh, just got a shout it out because for some reason IMDb uh, contributors are obsessed with actors that have appeared in Columbo. Uh, so if you want to see them, uh, Richard Anderson and Leslie Nielsen were both in Columbo, Lady in Waiting. Nielsen also appeared in Columbo, Identity Crisis. Anne Francis was in Columbo, A Stitch in Time, and also Columbo, Short Fuse. And Robbie the Robot appeared in Columbo, Mind Over Mayhem from 1974. I told you, Robbie the Robot had a stellar career after this. <laughs> he really did. I don't know what Columbo is. Oh, you oh are Lord. you are not missing out. I'll just <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll show you after this. Okay. No, um, you won't. No, I'm, we won't. I'm good. It's it's basically the best worst detective show. I think is the best way to do it. The the, the way that this show does it is the first 15 20 minutes they show you how the murder is done. Like you see who the who the cast of character is you see the murder take place you see how the murderer does it and then the rest of the episode is watching columbo just kind of bumble around but he's putting on a front and he's making the person that did the murder he's making the person that did the murder increasingly nervous and eventually making them make mistakes and crack and then he catches them but because it was made predominantly in the 70s and 80s it's not shot anywhere near as interestingly as that sounds and it's kind of brilliant, but it's also kind of awful. I think I'll skip that one. I love Columbo. He also so. tried to make a spin-off called Mrs. Columbo. Mm. So cool. If that's that's the level of like, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Oh, yeah for this. <laughs> mm. Okay. Well, uh, until we begin to start watching Columbo, uh, what we should do, we have to score this film. Uh, and Sarah, as mm-hmm. it was your first time watching Forbidden Planet, you get to go first. What score would you give Forbidden Planet out of 10? Um, I would give Forbidden Planet five footprints out of ten. Hmm. Yeah, charming, but middle of the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't love it, didn't hate it. It was what it was. It did a thing. I've watched it, wouldn't watch it again. Okay. Aaron, what about yourself? I feel like I really enjoyed it, and I think I'm scoring this on the basis of what it meant at the time, hmm. like in terms of production and stuff. So I'm going to give it eight Robbie the Robots out of ten. Mm. 
I mean, the, the impact is undeniable. Um, I, I think it's, it is, it is a remarkable film and, and it is charming. And I'm really relieved because I was worried that it wasn't going to be. I was worried it was going to be a bit like watching Guys and Dolls, which is the last film that we kind of watched from this era where that just didn't translate <laughs> or, 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 you know, that the, the problems in the film were going to be more egregious than they are. And they're pretty egregious, but they're, you know, we've also seen worse, sadly. Um, and I feel as though that, yeah, this film holds up in parts. It is too long. Um, and it is suffering a bit from being a, a bit shoddy in places, but the bits where it shines still shine. Like, like Robbie the Robot is, is a fantastic character, and you can just see where C-3PO came from, yeah. where Crichton from Red Dwarf came from. The robot from Lost in Space. Yeah, course, almost yeah. literally looks exactly like yeah, it, because yeah. it was the same, same, same designer. Same designer, yeah. yeah. But you can see where all of these sort of interesting robot companions... I was reminded of the, um, the robots in the Fallout video game series, which are just Robbie's build. They were that shape and that kind of awkward yeah. uh, sort of um, stomping walk. Like, so many of these creatures have been influenced by this, this one design and this one interpretation. Um... And there are just so many fun things. But also, yeah, it's problematic. And it's a bit too long. And it's a bit slow. Um, so I'm going to give it five and a half oil jobs out of ten. Uh, that's that's roughly where I think it it, it, it sits. That's where it fits. That's where it fits, yeah. Um, just, just five and a half. That's, <laughs> that's all you need. So that brings us to the end of this review. Sarah and Aaron, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. Thanks thank for you for having us. us. And for those of you listening at home, thank you for listening in. Hey, we got a Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash CCUC podcast. There are extra bonus goodies there for you to enjoy. We're also on Facebook. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club there. Give us a like and you'll get updates, news, that sort of thing. And of course, you can subscribe to this each and every week. There's an episode that comes out and we can send it directly to you. Just hit subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. But that's all for this week, so until next time, goodbye! Bye. Bye. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.